Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we'll be in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And I welcome you as part of this study as we go through God's Word together, seeking to read it, to understand its context, the message it would have had to those first hearers of it, but also the message that it has for us today as we seek to grasp hold of Scripture. So I thank you again for joining us. Welcome. Now let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we turn our attention to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus the Christ, that he is our Redeemer and our Savior, that you speak to us revealing yourself through your word that you reveal Christ, the Messiah, through your word. Lord, we thank you that you inspired John to pen these words as an encouragement and as an explanation of the truth of who you are and how we may know you and gain salvation. And Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us a clarity of mind that we might understand and give us hearts that are sensitive to your voice. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look at John chapter 4, I want to draw a contrast with John chapter 3. We've just come off this account of Nicodemus and Jesus' interaction with him as a, a Jewish leader, a teacher in Israel, a, quote, righteous man, you know, as they saw things. Now, contrast that with the encounter that we see in John chapter 4, because it is an encounter that literally breaks all the rules. It is Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman at a well, and she is, in almost every way, the opposite of Nicodemus. And yet the outcome here is an incredible thing. So let's look together at the text as we dig in with chapter 4 of John's Gospel. It begins this way in verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Now, Judea is in the south. Galilee is on the, well, on the Sea of Galilee. It's northern part of the Jordan. You go up the Jordan Valley from Judea and get there. Would be the normal route for Jews. That's not the route we're going to find out that Jesus took. Now, what is going on here? You may have read that, especially verse 2, and gone, wait a minute. In the last chapter, John's disciples said that Jesus was baptizing. What's the problem here? Well, the scripture doesn't declare that Jesus was baptizing. John's disciples said, and they were lumping Jesus and his disciples in together. That group over there with the Messiah is baptizing. Um, could be an understanding of that. But uh, for whatever reason, John waited to clarify that until the you know second verse of chapter 4. Although I understand the chapters and verses were something we added later. That's not how John wrote it. So again... Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was baptizing, that he was making more disciples than John. 
and you know Jesus himself didn't do it his disciples did but so he left Judea and returned to Galilee why well because he knew that there was this this conflict brewing and it wasn't yet time for him to face off with the religious leaders in Jerusalem in that fashion it's coming it's all moving towards the crucifixion but not there yet. So he leaves Judea and he returns to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Well, he had to because he chose to not go up the Jordan to get there. Eventually he came to a Samaritan to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time, because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now, we need to back up a little bit and set the stage for what's happening here. You may not be familiar enough with the cultural aspects of the first century world in that part of the world to understand how abnormal this entire situation was. Number one, Jews did not travel through Samaria. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And I'm probably understating the extremity of that. Um, they could not stand each other. They really hated each other. There was this, this um, I want to say ethnic in the literal sense of the word, ethnos, nationality. Um, there was a, an ethnic conflict between them that dated back to the, well, dated back to the divided kingdom of Israel and Judea, but at least the, at that point, the Judeans saw the Israelites as, you know, the same people. But after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and the way the Assyrians kept rebellion from happening was they intermixed peoples. They shipped a bunch of the Israelites off and intermixed them in different regions of the Assyrian Empire. They brought in a bunch of people and intermixed with the people in that were left in Israel. Israel was already in conflict with Judea religiously because they had literally rewritten the books of Moses to carve out references to Jerusalem and and to worship at the temple and things of that or tabernacle as the case may be um, they had literally rewritten it so that they could avoid having Israelites travel to Judea as the center of their religious worship that was not okay all right that was already moving them away from the truth of God's word then after the Assyrians conquered them and they got intermixed with other cultures, there were other beliefs, there was still that, that nugget, that kernel of grounding in the law of Moses, but there was a whole bunch missing and a whole lot twisted and corrupted and other views brought in. And the Jews then saw the Israelites as uh, basically mongrels. They, they did not fit the definition of being Jewish anymore in ethnicity nor in belief. The Samaritans 
who are kind of the descendants partially of the Israelites, viewed the Jews as just, you know, being corrupt, being, you know, whatever. They hated each other. So normally a Jew would not travel through Samaria. Normally a man, especially a man alone, would not talk to a woman alone at a well. It would be socially unacceptable, totally outside the norm. So that wouldn't happen. Also, as we're going to find out in a little bit, uh, this was at noon. This woman came to the well to get water. This is a hot, dry, arid region. This well was vital. Uh, this is near Shechem. If you go back and read your Old Testament history. Um, for her to be out there in the middle of the day means that for some reason she was not going out there in the morning hours or the evening hours when it was cooler and when most of the women would have been going to the well. She was a social outcast. So we've got several breakings of the norms going on here. Now let's look at that interaction again. He had gone through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, or she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Because, I mean, really, as a Jew, not only would it be inappropriate to be it would be inappropriate in that day and age for him, a man alone, to be addressing her as a woman alone. But it's also inappropriate for him as a Jew to be asking her as a Samaritan to give him something to drink. A Jew would have seen that as being unclean, um, totally inappropriate. So she's going, you know, what's going on here? Why are you asking me for a drink? Hmm. Then we get to verse 10 and Jesus answers her. Verse 10, it says, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now, he's speaking spiritually there, but his reference, living water, I mean, that's a term that would have meant something to her. This area of Samaria did not have, quote, living water. It did not have flowing waters, which is what living water refers to uh, in a literal sense. That wasn't there. All they had was well. They didn't have a river. They didn't have streams. They had a well. Actually, a well that was like 100 feet deep to get to the water. It's a lot of rope. But Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Verse 11, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket 
Mmm, problem. She's going, but you can't even get to the water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? So she's appealing to to Jacob, to, to her ancestry. How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? It's going, you know, it doesn't make sense. You're offering something and I'm looking around. There's no rivers around here. You can't even get to the water in this well. And you're claiming you can offer better than that. Jesus replied, verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, again, there is a very literal, temporal um, meaning to what he's saying, but there's also a spiritual meaning, and she's not getting the spiritual. It's, It's slipping past her. She's thinking, okay, you're offering me living water. You're talking about a spring of water welling up, and that provides life. Because this is an area where when you can't get to the water, you don't live long. And he's offering something better than this well that takes a bucket and 100 feet of rope to get to the water. This is an enticing offer, but it's one that doesn't make sense to her. And again, because he is offering something spiritual. And she doesn't understand. So verse 15, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. So this sounds like if this is real, this is an awesome deal. Please, sir, give me this water. I mean, there's even an exclamation point there. Then I will never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Subtext, I won't have to come here in the middle of the day because I'm an outcast from my own community. I don't have to come out here in the heat to get what I need to survive. You're offering me something better. So in a very tangible sense, she's going, this is a good deal. She's still not understanding what he's offering. His response in verse 16, oh, and here's where he turns it. He says, go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Now, As we get through 19, we see a very human reaction from her, which is to be expected. After all, she is a human. When confronted with the reality of our sin, our first response is often to duck and run. Our first response is often to divert the attention. We don't want our sin exposed because we're ashamed of it. When we are confronted with the righteousness of God, it is crushing to us because we cannot hide our sin. Here, Jesus, he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, come on, he was Jesus. But 
when he says, go get your husband, he's leading the discussion to the real problem in this woman's heart. She wants this water. Lord, you know, she says, give it to me. Give me this water, please, sir. Okay, well, here's where it starts. You've got to confront your sin. Go get your husband, is what he tells her. He says, well, I don't have a husband. Wow, you know, you're right. You've had five. And the implication here isn't that she's been a widow that many times. But there's the implication that there is infidelity taking place. These relationships have ended in a in a bad way. And now she's living with a guy and not even married to him. She is living in adultery. He is not excusing any of her sin. He is pointing out her sin so that it can be confronted. So he puts it out there, but notice her response. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Okay, it's kind of important to acknowledge this. There's a progression in her understanding of who she's dealing with. At this stage of the game, she's going, wow. He knows things that there's no other way other than God has revealed it to him that he could know. So he's a prophet. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. But then we get to verse 20. And she does that very human thing. She diverts the attention. She starts a theological discussion. She says, so tell me, you're a prophet, so tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim, which is right there near Shechem, by the way? Um, And the literal translation on some of this is on this mountain instead of saying Mount Gerizim, but Mount Gerizim is the mountain that overlooks Shechem. So she's talking about Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. So, you know, when things get too personal, you dodge with a theological question. And so she poses that to him. And that's where he starts to respond in even a more different way. So picking up in verse 21, it says, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, he means that the Jews are the ones who were entrusted with the message of the one true God the law of Moses, the promised Messiah, the promised one would come through the Jewish line. Were there other descendants of Abraham? Absolutely. And even the Samaritans could claim some lineage, some of them, at least a partial lineage into the tribes of Israel, but they were not Jewish. The Jews would be that place where the message had been protected, and maybe they didn't use it well, but they were given the message, and the promise of the Messiah was through the Jewish people. And so he says, you guys are worshiping what you don't know. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. In other words, the Savior, the Messiah, would come through the Jews. 
But then we get to verse 23 and he says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. So when he's told them, you, you believe me, dear woman, the time is coming. He's about to turn that around and say, in fact, the time's not just coming. It's here now. So again, verse 23, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, that in spirit and in truth, literally translated, that's not what it reads. Literally, it reads in spirit and truth. Um, it's they're they're grouped together. They're not separable. It's not you know in spirit and in truth like it's two different things. The way it's actually phrased in Greek, those are pulled together under the same article, and they're just they're they're unified. It's a it's a, it's a joined concept of spirit and truth. Now you may say, well, what's that matter? It matters that you can't view these as separate things. And John is intentionally tying them together that way. I believe Jesus probably said it that way. But a time is coming. In fact, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, she's already acknowledged Jesus as a prophet. And now she's going, okay, you're telling us, you're telling me all of this and about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and that God seeks that kind of worshiper, and that now's the time. So she hits him with, okay, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her. Now, this is a huge statement here. As the New Living Translation renders it, it says, then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. What a loaded term. He's using that expression, that I am expression. That is a direct Old Testament reference to the name of God. That is who God says he is. When Moses says, who do I tell them sent me? Tell them I am. Um, I am. It's that reference to the name of God. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. She just asked about the Messiah. He says, I am the Messiah. Literally, again, literally translated, he says, I am the one speaking to you. Not, I am the one speaking to you, but I am God. And the one speaking to you. He is declaring himself the Messiah. And he's making it clear to her, a Samaritan, not a Jew, a Samaritan. Hmm. Just then, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Remember, that was inappropriate. That was socially unacceptable in that day and age. 
So they came back and they were shocked. Did you catch that word? They weren't just surprised. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, oh my, to be a disciple of Jesus and not have the nerve to ask. Yeah. If Jesus is doing it, that makes it okay. So you better tread lightly if you're going to question it. Um, They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. There's a couple of instances that I love to point out in scripture when I get to them from the gospels. And this is one of them. Because if you step back and look at what has taken place here, a Samaritan, a Gentile, someone outside the Jewish community has now acknowledged Christ as the Messiah in faith and has immediately gone off to tell her own people about the Messiah. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So people came streaming from the village to see him in the heat of the day, about noon. They come out because this woman who is an outcast, who is a sinner living entrenched in that sin, has come and said, look, there's something different. He may be the Messiah and pointing them back. And so the people came. Interestingly enough, people came from the village that Jesus' disciples had just been to to buy food. They didn't come back with anybody. But this woman who was an outcast did. Let's keep reading verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat some, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. See, they they really didn't get the spiritual meaning of what he said at this point. Much better than than the Samaritan woman did. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and the harvest? But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joys await both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't 
plant. Others had already done the work. Now you will get to or you will get to gather the harvest. So what's he talking about? Well, partially he's talking about what is about to happen. Jesus planted in the life of this woman, and his message was carried to the Samaritan people, and they are about to see a harvest. But also, this can be a reference to, to God and the Holy Spirit working through John the Baptist to plant, and the disciples will harvest. It's the work of the Spirit changing lives and preparing hearts. And the disciples, the followers of Christ, us today, get to participate in the harvest. Wake up and look around. The fields are ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. Hmm. So, are we working in the harvest? Speaking of the harvest, let's take a look at it, or this part of it. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. He stayed for two days. This isn't just a Jew cutting through Samaria because it's a shorter distance. He stayed for a couple of days. Verse 41, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then he said to the woman, or excuse me, then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Hmm. See, he's moved from prophet to Messiah to savior of the world. Messiah was really a, a rooted in Judaism term. It is the anointed one of God. Um, this is what the term means, Messiah, Christ. They both mean the anointed one. It, it, this whole messianic idea is rooted in Judaism, and it's not wrong. But when their expression of who Jesus is moved from Messiah, which was linked tightly with Judaism, and even their Samaritan bent on Judaism, out to Savior of the world, that is a Savior that is for all of mankind, not just for the Jews or just for the Samaritans, but the whole world. We saw that in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, and he came to save the world. Here he is Savior of the world. And interestingly enough, the Samaritans did not believe because of miraculous signs. They believed because of what he said. Now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know 
that he is indeed the savior of the world. What a harvest. What a harvest. And a harvest outside the Jews. These are Gentiles coming to faith. Speaks of what is coming for the future of the message of Christ, that it wouldn't be isolated to the Jewish people, but it would extend out to encompass the world. And we see that reality today. And yet the fields are still ripe for harvest. And we are still called to wake up and be workers in that harvest. Because God has planted and God has used others to plant. Let's not be like the disciples that went into that same town and left without making an impact. Whereas this one outcast sinful woman living in adultery encountered the truth of Christ and the person of Jesus the Christ and went back and told everyone. And they came and they heard and they believed. Let's be like her. Let's have that life-changing joy of finding the Savior that drives us to tell others. I pray that I would be more like her than the disciples in this account. I mean, the disciples, I mean, they're, they're the disciples. They're the 12. I mean, wow. But she gets it. And they're still looking around going, huh? At this point. Let me be like her. Now we're going to look at, well, the response when Jesus gets to Galilee. Back among the Jewish people. And it's interesting, the contrast, the Samaritans, they they accepted who Christ was as the Savior of the world because they had talked with him. They had heard him themselves. They had heard testimony about him. But you get back to the Jewish people, and they're looking for signs and wonders. They want miracles. It's an interesting contrast, and we'll dig into that in the next few verses. Now, verse 43 picks up with Jesus back again in Galilee. It says in 43, at the end of the two days, that would be the two days that he was in Sychar and Samaria. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did there. Now, what's the point of those couple of verses there? Well, basically, it's telling us, look, he went back to the to the Jewish people. He went back to Galilee, the people that that knew him, the people of the promise. And once he gets back there, he has pointed out that a prophet's without honor in his own hometown. You know, people know you, they know who you've been, they watched you grow up, they tend to not respect you the way they would someone they don't know coming in um, type of thing is kind of a proverbial statement there. And there's some truth to that proverbial statement. 
But then it says in verse 45, yet the Galileans welcomed him for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. They had seen miracles. They had seen the Samaritans that we just finished reading about. They heard what Jesus had to say and believed. The Galileans wanted to see it. And they gathered around. The Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything. They welcomed him. Not they believed, but they welcomed him. As we go on in verse 46, it says, As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana. Remember Cana, the wedding feast? Yeah, where it started. He came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There, the governor's or excuse me, there was a governor or government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Now, you kind of got to wonder there, is some of what Jesus saying to the larger group that's there, or is it directed just to this man? You know, are you only going to believe if you see these wondrous signs? But the next thing we see happening with this government official is he believed without seeing the sign, without the evidence being present yet. Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said and went back home or and started home. Jesus's indictment against the Galilean people, against the people of Canaan and that whole area was that they wanted to see. They wanted the signs and the miracles as the evidence. But we keep having these individuals pointed out by John who believed because they heard because of what Jesus said, they believed. Whether it's this government official or it's the Samaritan people there at Sychar. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of, the some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. So the guy hadn't even made it home before his servants found him. Hey, your son, he's alive and well. The kid was about to die. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. 
So he had believed in Jesus and he had taken action on that belief. Then once the sign, once the miracle, once that healing had taken place, that became the avenue for the whole household to come to faith in Christ. Now that's maybe a little odd for us because we don't generally in our Western uh, society, especially here in the United States, operate in that fashion to where when the leader of the household makes a decision on faith or action that the entire household follows suit. And it's not a, oh, they're obligated to because they work for him. He's the boss. No, um, it's a trust. It's a, that is the, the, the leader of this household and we trust their decisions. We trust them. So if they place their belief in this Jesus and we can see the same evidences that they see, but if they say this Jesus is trustworthy and they're going to place their faith in him, then we will too because we stand together in that. Um, again, that's something foreign to our society, uh, both literally and I guess figuratively, but um, that's not how we tend to operate. But we need to understand as we read scripture that when we see that in scripture, that's normal. When the Philippian jailer, if you get over to that part of Acts, when the Philippian jailer um hears the message from Paul and Silas and accepts Christ, his whole household comes to faith. Um, that's, that's not an unusual thing. And don't read that and go, oh, that's weird. Or, oh, those conversions aren't legitimate. No, they're genuine faith conversions. Just the, the drive for that faith conversion, the, the trust comes through the head of the household. Not they trust in the head of the household and that saves them, but because of the head of the household's faith in Christ, they place their faith in Christ and are saved. And so it's a it's an interesting social dynamic going on there, and maybe not one we're familiar with. In some cultures, it still exists that way, but uh, just for the most part, not in our United States Western culture. So your son will live. He and his entire household believed in. Jesus. Verse 54. This is the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. So John in his gospel, remember he's writing from his perspective and with his purposes. So the order is a little bit different and he is emphasizing the miraculous works of Jesus. He's also emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. He has already emphasized that salvation isn't just a Jewish thing, that Christ is a Jew, that they are the people of the promise and he is the promised one, but that it is for salvation for all people. And already we see the gospel spreading in that first century world. Even before the crucifixion, we see people coming to faith in Christ from outside just the household of Judaism. And of course, Israel, Judea is still the focus of what Jesus is doing in his earthly ministry, but not to the exclusion of everything else. And uh, it's just some beautiful imagery here, some beautiful play back and forth, and some beautiful challenges and reminders to us as we as 
believers, if if we've been believers for a while, that that we not fall into that trap of religious security that that maybe some of the Jewish leaders had at that point in time, but instead we stay fresh in our faith in Christ. That we understand that we may not be the ones planting, but we are called to harvest and do that as an act of service to our Savior. That we have believed because we heard and responded in faith to the message of the gospel. It can't just be built on signs. It just can't be built on on the miraculous. And those things can undergird our faith, but our faith can't be built on those things. It has to be built on the reality of who Jesus is and the message of the gospel. So, just, I, I think, some wonderful messages in the fourth chapter of John. Uh, in this this profound encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well, or Jesus and this governor in Capernaum. What sort of encounters do we have with Jesus? And what does it motivate us to do? Something to consider. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for blessing us with your word, for giving us a Savior in Christ Jesus that is a Savior for all of humanity, not just for one people group or another people group. And Lord, we thank you that you have included us in your redemptive work, that having saved us, you have called us to be laborers for you, to be about harvesting in those fields that are already ripe unto harvest. Lord, help us to live for you and to proclaim you with a boldness and a sincerity, an authenticity that is rooted in our relationship with you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.